Well, church, we are um, charging on through the book of Genesis, and uh, this morning uh, we're going to look at a bit of Genesis chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. So what I'm about to read to you is, hopefully I'm going to read it to you, is various readings from chapter 5 and then uh, then the beginning of 6. This is the record of the family line of Adam. When God created humankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and named them humankind. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and he named him Seth. The length of time Adam lived after he became the father of Seth was 800 years. During this time, he had other sons and daughters. The entire lifetime of Adam was 930 years, and then he died. Skipping ahead a little bit. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God for 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. The entire lifetime of Enoch was 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and then he disappeared because God took him away. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah. This one, saying, this one will bring us comfort from our labor and from the painful toil of our hands because of the ground that the Lord has cursed. Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah, and he had other sons and daughters. The entire lifetime of Lamech was 777 years, and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When humankind began to multiply on the face of the earth, and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humankind were beautiful. Thus they took wives for themselves from any they chose. So the Lord said, My spirit will not remain in humankind indefinitely, since they are mortal. They will remain for 120 more years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also after this, when the sons of God would sleep with the daughters of humankind who gave birth to their children. They were the mighty heroes of old, the famous men. But the Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind had become great on the earth. Every inclination of the thoughts of their minds was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made humankind on the earth, and he was highly offended. So the Lord said, I will wipe humankind whom I have created from the face of the earth. Everything from humankind to animals, including creatures that move on the ground and birds of the air, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, uh, speak to us about your word.
Father, help us to understand uh, what you want us to see in this passage. Open our eyes so that we can see what you're doing in and through it. Open our ears so we can hear your voice. Open our hearts so we can trust you and walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, I need to acknowledge uh, right up front that there are some, um, well, hard to believe details in this passage, right? You know, we got guys living into their 900s. We've got whoever these sons of God are and the daughters of men leading to heroes of old. Um, there's some stuff that uh, pushes on the edge of what we accept as reality in this passage. So, What's the purpose of it? Like, what do we do with this? Now, remember, we've been trying to uh, read Genesis alongside a group of people that we've never met except through Scripture. And that's the group of Israelites who were delivered from Egypt and found themselves in the wilderness trying to figure out who this God is who just defeated all the gods of Egypt, demolished Egypt, completely and brought them into the wilderness. It may for them have provided some helpful information to understand how some things that they took for granted about the beginning of the world uh, became what they are for them in their day, their present day. For example, basically, Every, every culture, the, the neighboring cultures around Israel, believed that the first people lived a really long time. As a matter of fact, compared to, um, to the ancient Sumerian legends, these ages are modest. They're quite young. So, so the Israelites are hearing things that are kind of connecting to their reality, and they're trying to understand how it became this. Uh, you may know that this story is leading eventually to a massive flood. Well, every story that they've heard, the Egyptian stories, the Sumerian stories, the Canaanite stories, the Babylonian stories, involve a massive flood that sort of rebooted the world. And so people generally take it for granted that at some point that's what happened, but understanding why it happened, that's new information to them. If those things were true, how do they fit into the story that the Israelites are now learning about Yahweh, the creator and ruler of everything? Okay, yeah, well, that's a bit of what uh, they would have gleaned from this chapter. But I actually think that there's a bigger, deeper thing that they would hear in the stuff that I just read to you. There are things that would have stuck out to them here, um, and, and they should stick out to us as well. The message that I want you to hear is going to sound generic, but it's really important. The Almighty Creator, Yahweh, wants active relationship with you. Like, that's what He wants. That's His desire. And, and I get it, all right? We're in church. We're an evangelical church. Like a lot of Christ-following churches, this may feel a bit generic. 
God wants to be in relationship with you. Like, stop the presses. Um, okay, that's what you might expect me to say. It's old hat. We know, we know God wants a relationship with us. But, but do you? Um, if you were really honest, what's the nature of your active relationship with God right now? Do you enjoy a closeness with him, uh, an ongoing active conversation? Are you motivated by his pleasure? Or maybe God's kind of a, a duty. You're here out of a sense of duty. This is, you know, you're a, a Coloradan, so at least once a month, you know, you come and, and, and participate in church. Um, you, you do your part, he does his, and then you go about your merry way. And frankly, you might feel a bit uncomfortable with someone who seems to have an active, ongoing conversation with God. You think, well, they'll, they'll grow out of it. <laughs> Others of you might not be sure what I even mean by an active relationship with God. Now that you think about it, uh, you may not even believe that's real. I mean, there's there's so many ways that we could chart where each of us really are in terms of our relationship with God. I have found as I sort of look, look at my life and my experience, my sense of closeness to God ebbs and flows. It's cyclical. Sometimes I feel like, wow, I'm, I'm with him. We're together. I'm hearing things. I'm, I'm sensing things. And then other times, frankly, I feel a little like depressed and distant in my relationship with God. And that, that's, that's a cycle that um, is ongoing to me. But this passage, as I've been in it this week, it, it has deeply moved me because I think it actually casts a vision for God's people for a relationship with him that leads to joy and life. So I'm going to just go through this passage in four movements, all right? All about relationship, how we're created for relationship, how we can enjoy relationship, how we reject that relationship, and how that relationship is redeemed, all right? Created for it, enjoying it, rejecting it, redeeming it. Okay, created for relationship. Here's what I mean. I just read the beginning of chapter 5, and then a little bit near the end, and um, but what chapter 5 is, is the, the genealogy of Adam, the generations of Adam. Um, and, uh, and the first thing that we see in this set of really 10 generations from Adam is that Adam is made in the image of likeness of God. That, that's, we're reminded of that. And then it goes on to say, Adam passes that image and likeness on to his son, Seth. And the implication is, even though it doesn't say it for each generation, that that image and likeness is passed on and on. Now, we've talked a bit about what the image and likeness might mean. It might mean that we're God's representatives to the rest of creation. That is an interesting function of the image and likeness. But considering relationship, I think, I think this tells us a, a huge clue about our relationship with God. And I get that clue by reading back into chapter 2 with Adam and the, the crafting of Eve. You see, no creature was found who could be in a, a life-giving, joyful, 
multiplying relationship with Adam. And so God goes through this wonderful, dramatic buildup to present Eve to Adam. And, and, and Adam looks at her and sees, you know, she's different than me, but she's also similar to me. Like she's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. In other words, we can have a relationship that is unlike what Adam could have with these other things that are not like him. So if you read that back to God carefully creating people in his image and likeness, what does it mean at the, the most fundamental level? God made us to be in relationship with us. He might look at us and say something similar to Adam saying to Eve, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You're like me. Let's spend time together. Right? Likeness enables relationship. Okay. So the second thing that we see, and, and this isn't really about relationship, but I've got to touch on it because, you know, is anyone else like just troubled when they're living into their 900s? Like, What's, go, what's going on? So I, I want to just touch on that, okay? But that's the second thing that would majorly stick out. The first image and likeness is being passed on. Second thing, they're really old. How? Um, and what do we do with this? It sounds fantastical. It sounds mythological. It sounds legendary. Um, and I don't really know what to do with it. <laughs> Let's move on. No. Uh, so... <laughs> Here are a few, just a few theories, okay? Um, some people uh, see that there's, the, you know, say, well, it's before the flood and there must have been some atmospheric difference that allowed people to live longer. To, you know, the UV rays were different. Um, Genesis doesn't really think about the science too much. That's, a, that's an interesting theory. Um, others remember that it fits with the common understanding of ancient people um, that, uh, that the first people lived a really long time. And so they just say, yeah, this is just like the common understanding. God's, God's presenting things to them that make sense about their forebears. Other people say, oh, no, these ages are symbolic. We're not sure what for, but they symbolize something. Um, like I've thought and thought about it. You know, one guy lives to be 365, like, oh, the days of the year, you know, I don't know. Um, uh, the one I like best is, is Lamech. This is, the, this is the second guy named Lamech. Uh, and the first guy named Lamech was in chapter four, and he was a bad dude. In fact, he like, you know, God had told Cain, the murderer, that, you know, uh, if somebody kills you, you'll be avenged sevenfold. Lamech kills a guy and boasts about it. I'll be avenged 77-fold. You know, he's, you know, he's going. So then, so that's in the line of Cain. Now you have another Lamech in the line of Seth. And seven, 77, how old does this other Lamech live to be? 777. It's like, God's like, what? You know, uh, take that. I don't, I don't entirely know. Um, but I think it's probably best, rather than to get really caught up in it, to zoom out a little bit. Now, we haven't read ahead yet, but after the flood, after you, you know, when we'll see the next genealogy, the ages are less than half of what they are here. And they, they quickly diminish. They start at like 400, and then they go to 200, and they're shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. And, and I think what we could see is that the consequences for 
Adam and Eve's sin is catching up to the human race. Like, you know, death was distant, but it was coming closer, and then it keeps coming closer and closer. And the, the big story seems to be telling us that. Which really leads to the third and really important thing I want to say about this, this line of Adam, and that is death has the final word. If you've got your Bibles, you could look down and each one, Adam and Seth and, and Seth's son and, you know, on and on and on. Methuselah, Lamech, each one, you know, they're born, they have a kid, they live a little bit longer, and then they die. And it, the way it's written, it emphasizes their death. And he died. It's like his biggest, greatest accomplishment is he died. That's what happens to them. Death haunts them. Whether life expectancy is 100 or 900, the reality that death is coming changes our experience of life. Death here is not merely physical death. For it's the consequence of sin. So it's, it's this spiritual separation and it's, it's casting a shadow over all of them. And so, with, you know, as they see, gosh, everyone is dying. I wonder if people just begin to say, what does it matter what we do? They start to say like, Kings, like Solomon later in Ecclesiastes, meaningless, meaningless. It's all, it doesn't matter if you're rich, poor, if you do great things, do bad things. It's, it's you know, we're, we're all going to end up in the same spot. You can't take it with you. Right or wrong, who cares? This is the same question that should haunt every atheist. If the natural world is all there is and you just vanish at some point, is there really such a thing as good and evil, as right and wrong? Or are we just random molecules banging into each other? But death doesn't reign supreme in Genesis chapter 5. The patterns of chapter 5 are radically interrupted when we get to the seventh generation, which interestingly, interestingly is what the first bad guy, Lamech, was. He was the seventh generation from um, Cain. Now the seventh generation from Adam through Seth is a guy named Enoch. Whereas everyone else had kids at a certain age, lived the remaining years, and then died, Enoch had, kids, had a kid at the relatively young age, apparently, of 65, and then he walked with God for 300 years, and he didn't die. He, God took him. He disappeared. God took him. And, I, you know, the, like, it doesn't say anything else, but it shouts at us because it breaks a pattern that goes 10 other times. Like, what is going on with this guy? It's not a throwaway detail. Enoch became the earliest paragon of faith. The writers of the New Testament celebrate him as one who pleased God and knew God intimately. He's a prophet in their eyes. When Adam and Eve had sinned and were covered in their shame, they, they hid. They were found to be hiding when God's on his evening stroll. God wants to walk with them. He comes on his stroll and says, where are you guys? Let's go for our walk together. You know, that's his desire. This idea of walking with God is 
is the ideal for our life with God. It's the picture of what it could be. And the rest of the Bible celebrates it. Here's a couple places where you'll see it in Scripture. Um, uh, Leviticus 26 calls us to walk in God's statues and obey his commandments. You know, so, so God goes, he goes on to say, you know, that he will walk with them. He'll be their God and, and they'll be his people. You know, Jesus invited his disciples to follow me. Like, let's go on a walk together. Colossians chapter 2 calls on believers to, to you know, some translations say live out your lives. The, the, the Greek word is walk, walk out your lives with Christ. Revelation chapter 3 celebrates believers uh, who've remained faithful so they will walk with God. It's like the great end goal. Walking with God is this summary for this relationship that we can have with him. An active, continual seeking and choosing of his company. That's what's offered to us in walking with God. That's what God wants for us. That we would find our meaning, joy, peace, purpose, and life. Our, our sense of nearness and pleasure in the presence of God. That, that our whole character is formed by this being our highest priority. That's what Enoch is presenting to us. And when that happens, death sort of becomes a non-issue. Enoch just vanishes. We can take the flip side for granted as well. This whole idea of getting to walk with God means God wants to walk with us. He wants to walk with us. The rebellion in Eden and your sin does not prevent God from wanting to spend time with you. Just let that sink in for a sec. He, 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 he continually, he's, this, is, this is eight generations later after the sin. And God wants to be with them. He, wa he so celebrates Enoch. Just come on up and be with me, bud. It's beautiful. And think about how that would sound for the ancient Israelites who grew up in fear of these fickle gods of Egypt. And then they see how mighty and terrible this God Yahweh is who brings all of the plagues on Egypt. And then they're hearing this God who seems so ferocious wants to walk with us. He wants to be with us. And yet, the overall picture is that we, we reject the relationship. Part three, we reject the relationship. Now we need to come to the days of Noah. These are dark days. Um, you know, you have the sons of God and the daughters of taking the daughters of men as their wives. They have offspring who are called the Nephilim, which either means the fallen ones or the giants. Not sure how, you know, that's the fun of language. It could mean either one. Um, they're the heroes of old. What in the world is going on here? Um, you know, again, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but I think to read Genesis, like we've got to answer these questions a little bit. So um, I think I have a chart of um, sort of what some theories about uh, what's going on here. So, so Calvin and Luther and, and guys in that era, they thought that the sons of God were the line of Seth. You know, the image and likeness of God has been passed from Adam to Seth 
and on and on. And the daughters of men, those are the ladies from Cain's side of the family. And, uh, you know, so, yeah. So you kind of have God's people in, in the line of Seth and not God's people in the line of, of Cain. And, you know, all throughout the Old Testament, God frowns on his people intermarrying with other cultures. So, um, so maybe that's what's going on. Others take the sons of God as a reference to, you know, the second one, powerful men in culture who are just acquiring. It doesn't say they're, they're marrying women. It says they're taking women. They're acquiring them. They're objectifying them. They're, you know, so these guys, you know, whether you're powerful or not, you have a right to marry. But in this case, they're treating women like objects, possessions, using them just like the first bad Lamech did. You know, I have two wives and I'm powerful and violent. Okay, maybe. Um, others uh, look to the more traditional reading of this, saying the sons of God were like somehow fallen angels. They suggest that these were men like Cain who, you know, knew that sin was this beast crouching at the door and they opened the door anyway. So we might say in New Testament language, they're demon-possessed men. And they're sort of passing this wickedness on to their offspring. But whatever else it means, it leads to this devastating statement. The, the next slide. Um, the Lord God saw that the wickedness of humankind had become great on the earth. Every inclination of their thoughts, uh, of the thoughts of their minds, was only evil all the time. Every inclination, only evil, all the time. Wow. Um, the, you know, we talk in, uh, Presbyterians like to talk about total depravity, which means every part of us has been corrupted. But that's different than utter depravity, which means every part of you is as bad as it possibly can be. And like, think about the human race. Like, people do good things. They might have bad motivations, but they do good things a lot. You know, I have bad motivations for almost every good thing I do. Um, so I'm experiencing total depravity, but if I'm as bad as I could possibly be, that's utter depravity. That seems to be what's going on here. They're completely corrupt. And, and, and since we're talking about relationship with God, remember that's what we're talking about, I want you to see something here. God saw their wickedness. He he saw their wickedness. And this is a really significant theme. In our relationship with God, we are seen by him. In fact, Genesis talks about what God sees all the time. Chapter 1, everything God makes, he sees it and says, oh, that's good. In, in chapter 3, after Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit, he comes and he can't see them. Where are you? In in this chapter, chapter 6, he sees only wickedness. And what he sees impacts him deeply. This statement actually disturbed me for many years. It's like what led me to study theology. This idea, God saw this and he regretted what he made. That terrified me for many years. If God can see something that he's done and then regret it and change course, does that mean can anything God does be trusted? You know, like are the promises that we, we sort of hang our whole life on, can they be trusted? 
It's a scary thought to think God could regret a decision he's made and go the other way. Is anything secure? But this word for regret, it can also, it, it doesn't really just mean regret. It, it actually describes being grieved, deeply grieved, in pain. God, God saw what he made in chapter 1 and it delighted him. Then he sees what happened to it and it hurts him. Oftentimes we think about sin just in terms of like the sinner. We focus on the sinner and restoring the sinner. And that's a big part of the gospel. We're all sinners. We want to know that the sinner can be restored. But we often don't think about the victim of the sin. We, we don't think about what, you know, like the pain, the damage that's happened in their life. God has allowed himself to experience pain out of his love for us. It's not that God is fickle and changes his mood. and his, It's that his love is so consistent that he will respond appropriately in his love to any situation. It would be totally unloving to look at this and say, eh, whatever. Wouldn't it? Everyone's wicked all the time. No, God sees it. He, he, his grief, he's, he made us for relationship with him, and we're far away in this moment. Okay, so I'm going to go through this fast, but in terms of relationship with God, here's, here's what we get in the passage that I've read. We get two things, God seeing us and our opportunity to walk with him. So I was thinking about these two ideas, these two images. You know, they both just help us imagine our relationship with God. I'm seen by God. I walk with God. And, and you know, I'm so proud of myself, so sorry. Um, but I, I came up with a two-by-two two box for this that helps us understand this. There, that's a two-by-two two box. I didn't invent the box, actually, that those shapes already existed. But... Um, <laughs> But let me, let me propose some ideas for you. The vertical axis is about being seen by God. All right, so next slide, vertical axis. All right, so either I hide from God or I'm seen by God. On the horizontal axis, it's about walking with God. I walk with God or I run from God. So, okay, see? And so when you combine those things, you get these, this interesting picture of what our relationship with him could look like? How does it play out? Top left, if I'm aware of being seen by God, but not walking with him, I'm living in fear and rebellion, right? I know he sees me and I'm not doing what he wants me to do. And so I'm living in fear and then it becomes rebellion. And the bottom right, opposite with that, if I'm walking with God in my actions, attempting to do the right thing, but I don't want to be seen by God. At first I thought that's impossible. But actually, that's so possible, and I do it all the time. It's called hypocrisy. It, it's, it's called legalism. Like, I do the right thing. Like, don't bother me about what's happening in my heart. I'm just doing the right thing. In the bottom left, sort of the bad box, the baddest bad box, if I'm hiding from God and running from God, what starts as shame ultimately becomes what we have in our passage. Only wicked all the time. Ooh. But there's a final option, walking with God, opening our whole lives to him, the top right. I mean, I just listed off good things. Joy, love, purpose, open confession, no fear of death. This is the ideal that God, I'm, 
Like, I'm known by you, I'm seen by you, and I'm walking with you. So what does God decide to do when the human race moves into the bottom left box? It's a graphic image. I will wipe them from the face of the earth. Like the way you would wipe a dish. God's going to just wipe them away. This is how God deals with sin. And those who have completely rejected him in every inclination of their desires and thoughts have embodied and become their sin. But I want to I show you something, all right, from, from a guy who knew that he was seen by God and walked with God. I, I'm talking about King David, all right? King David is a messy guy. This is later on in the Bible, the, one of the, the most famous king of Israel. And King David, you know, he, he abuses his power. He commits adultery. He has the husband of the woman murdered. And finally, he's confronted with his own sin. And rather than hiding, rather than running, King David comes on his knees before God. It said, God, you know, the, the verse before, it said the, the Genesis verse, God will wipe them. David prays, wipe away my rebellious acts. He's using the language of Genesis chapter 6. Do that inside of my heart. Like, let my heart be your good creation that you're trying to preserve and wipe away the rebellion. You see, those who are in the upper right box... Do not live perfect lives, far from it, but they long for God's restoration. That's why we practice confession. I hope that's joy to us, all right? The reason that we're still here is that the wickedness was not all that God saw, all right? There's hope. God will not completely abandon humanity. He won't. Remember all the other things that God saw, all right? Uh, next slide. Um, here's all the other things. He saw that it was good. You know, where are you? God saw wickedness. There's one more sight of God in our passage. The last verse. Noah found favor. Can it emphasize it anymore? In the sight of the Lord. Like God saw Noah and he gives Noah his grace. The, the next verse will go on to say, Noah walked with God. And so he was a righteous man. He lives in the upper right box in a world of bottom left. Uh, yeah. Let's think about the Gospels here. There's a famous story in the Gospels of this rich young ruler, this young guy. He's influential and he, he, he wants to impress Jesus. And so he comes up to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? His assumption is, I already have. I just want you to tell me that I already have. And um, he seems actually a lot like Noah. He's godly, he's blameless, he follows all the rules. In his estimation, he's kept all the commandments, but he senses that something is missing. He's not yet walking with God. He, he doesn't yet know the joy of Enoch. The Gospel of Mark includes this fascinating detail about this guy. After this man lays out his case that he should be on Jesus' varsity discipleship team, Jesus looks at him. He looks at him. That's what Mark says. Like, why does Mark tell us that? Jesus looks at him and loves him. 
And then says, there's, a, there's one thing you lack. Sell all this stuff, all your riches, and come and walk with me. That's what you lack. That's, he's seen and he's invited to walk with. One of Jesus' disciples who did walk with him is Peter. And Peter walked with Jesus all over Judea. And he was so confident that he would walk with Jesus wherever Jesus went, even unto death. He boasted about it. And Jesus said, actually, uh, you won't when the pressure's on. In fact, the rooster's going to crow. And uh, Man, um, so the story, as the Gospel of Luke tells it, when Peter denies Jesus, Luke says, at that moment, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And then the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Like, he's catching Peter, and Peter feels his gaze, and he weeps. He's seen, and he weeps. Though Jesus looks at him and loves him, the young man failed to be Noah. He didn't walk with God. Though Peter walked with Jesus, uh, you know, when Jesus looked at him, he, he felt the fire of wrath. He, he failed to be Noah. We, we actually already know who Noah really is. The true Noah. Because there's one who goes under the waters. And when he comes up, a voice from heaven essentially says, I see you. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. He's found favor in God's sight, but God's wrath will come, not as in the days of Noah, but according to the prayer of David. How will God wipe out the rebellious acts? Not through a flood, not through punishment on David and his son, not through the sadness of the rich young ruler. It will come on this one man's heart for the sake of all. He will become fully em the embodiment of all the sin and wickedness. He will experience the grief of being only evil all the time. It will go dark. The flood will rush on him so that we can be free from hiding, from shame, from rebellion, from wickedness, from hypocrisy, from legalism. He sees you through Christ. He loves you. And you can walk with him. And that's what we celebrate at the table. That gift. This is what Jesus was offering to them. In fact, that very night is when they're telling him, Jesus, we'll stick with you. We'll go with you all the way. And they can't. This is what they need. On the night that our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Every time we eat this bread or drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim that we can now walk with God and be seen by him and not die in his presence. Let's pray. Father, 
it is my longing for, um, for the youngest guys here, Lord, my longing for, for Sawyer and Judah and William. It's my longing for the oldest of us here. It's my longing for all of us, Lord, that we would live out our days walking with you, that we would have the joy of Enoch walking with you for 300 years, and, and the, the transition of death feels like nothing. We've just remained with you. And I pray, Lord, that you would open the door to that reality for us as we take this bread drink this cup. Wash away, wipe away our wickedness, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.